0: Those of you who are visiting today can probably see by the cover of your program that we're in a series entitled, The Sex God. I want you to know that I would consider this particular sermon to be R-rated, and if that offends you, or if you're concerned about your young children, this might be the time to exit, and we will perfectly understand no one will be upset with you for doing so. So you guys may have seen this past week that the New York Times published the results of an investigation into sexual harassment allegations stretching over three decades against the powerful Hollywood producer, Harvey Weinstein. In addition to uh, lots of allegations, the newspaper found that Weinstein had reached at least eight, eight legal settlements with women over the years to keep them quiet. In the wake of this news, many women have come forward on social media with their own stories of sexual harassment by their own versions of Harvey Weinstein. One woman wrote this. She said, I was a 17 year old co op student, and he insisted on massaging my shoulders as I typed. He was a boss at my radio station and liked to say to me things like, Why girls my age liked giving? And then he uses a phrase. To describe oral sex, why girls like giving and not having sex. Another wrote this. My Harvey Weinstein was a club owner who constantly commented on my body and made disgusting jokes that weren't even funny, but that I laughed at because I was young and scared that it would affect me getting work. Now, those kinds of comments are likely not terribly surprising to many of you here today, especially to the women in the room. In fact, some of you have told me about those and other kinds of sexual harassments that you have experienced in your workplace. For some of you, it's a part of your daily reality, and I feel so sorry for you that that has to be your daily reality. If it's not in the workplace, some of you have told me about pictures that men have sent you uh, over the internet. Just yesterday I read a story about a woman in the Netherlands who'd bought a webcam for her home computer. She suddenly realized one day that the webcam was rotating around on its own and the voice of a hacker spoke to her from the speaker of the webcam. And I think you would probably agree with me that it's a good bet that that hacker was sexually motivated. These are some of the kinds of living hell that Jesus was referring to in the passage that we looked at last week. Kinds of living hell that come into our lives when a person or when a culture becomes sexually obsessed. Now we didn't finish looking at that passage last week and so we're going to look at it again this morning. And so for those of you who are regulars here, I'd like to ask you to turn in the Bible that you absolutely brought this morning because you wouldn't dare to come to church without it. I'd like for you to turn with me in to Matthew chapter 5 verse 27. Matthew chapter 5 verse 27. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning because you're visiting with us, we understand. We're going to put the verses up on the screen for you, so don't, uh, don't feel bad about that in any way. I told you last week that we have now turned kind of a corner in this series. For the first three weeks, we looked at the origin of sex. I wanted you to see that whatever squeamishness that you might have about sex, whatever squeamishness the local church might have about sex, that doesn't come from the Bible or from Christianity. The Bible has a great deal to say about sex. We saw that God created it. He is the sex God. We saw that he had... We saw that he said that sex is very good and that he even commanded married couples to have sex. Not just for the purpose of procreation, but for their pleasure. And by the way, for the pleasure of both the husband and the wife. But last week, we began to, we turned this corner and we began to look at some of the distortions of God's good gift of sex, how it becomes twisted when it becomes a God of its own in a culture like ours. And so I want to read again Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. We saw it last week. He said, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. What do you think about that? Okay. I mean, I think we just need to acknowledge that on the surface, that sounds crazy. You can easily walk away from a passage like this and wonder what it is that Jesus has against sex and why he says these kinds of crazy things about it. Well, again, I, I, I want to just say it one more time. Jesus didn't have anything against sex. We saw that in the first three weeks. As a member of the Trinity, he created sex. But This passage really isn't about sex. This is about sexual obsession. This is about lust. This is about wanting an experience without the vulnerability and commitment that sexuality requires. This is wanting an experience without the legal, the economic, the emotional, the spiritual, or the relational bonds of commitment and marriage. Just the experience. It's using someone as a commodity to get an experience. Like this. Here's an example. Last week, the Wall Street Journal ran an article entitled, Cheap Sex and the Decline of Marriage. The author was a professor of sociology at the University of Texas. And in his research, he found that the reason that young men and women are marrying later in life, statistically, that's true, the reason that they're marrying later in life is that young men find that they can get girls to give them sex without having to make any commitments to them. And in the article, he quotes a young man named Kevin who was describing why he doesn't want to get married yet. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this to you. We'll put it up on the screen. I think it's important for everyone to see it, but I especially think it's important for the young ladies in the room to, to see this. Kevin says, I'm not, being, I'm not done being stupid yet. I still want to go out and have sex with a million girls. Girls are easier to mislead than guys just by lying or just not really caring. If you know what girls want, then you know how you should not give that to them until the proper time. If you do that strategically, then you really can have anything you want, whether it's a relationship, sex, or whatever. You have the control. What lucky girl is going to get to marry him. I would agree with you. I would agree with him that he's not done being dumb yet. That's very dumb what he just said. This is what Jesus is speaking about in this passage. Sexual obsession and the way that it dehumanizes people. Now, that's kind of what we saw last week. Sexual accept, uh, s- sexual obsession and how That dehumanizes people in a culture. Today what I want to do is I want to see if we can understand why Jesus says these things that appear on the surface to be crazy. Things like gouging out your eye and cutting off your hand. And to get into that, I want to give you just a sense of the context of what Jesus is saying here by combining a real life situation with a little bit of imagination, all right? Here's the real life thing. One of the women who wrote in and described on social media her own story of being sexually harassed, she wrote this, be prepared. She said, I was 21 years old and I met this guy in his 60s and his wife at Bible study. He invited me to dinner at his home with him and his wife, but I discovered when I arrived that she wasn't there. Then he sat me down and he asked me if I masturbated. Then he said, if you and I were on a deserted island, how long before we'd be having sex? Now that's the real life part. Now I want to use your imagination just a little bit. Imagine that she were to go visit some church in her community the next Sunday. And let's imagine that she discovers that this very guy who'd done that was one on, one of, on one of the big boards at the church. He was some big leader in the church. And let's imagine that she confronted him and she said, does the church know about you? What do you think he would have said back? What do you think his reply would have been? That's the context of this passage. Jesus is speaking about religious leaders who would have responded to that young woman by saying, what's the big deal? Bible only says that I can't commit adultery. I didn't commit adultery. As long as I don't have sexual intercourse with someone other than my wife, I'm good with God and God is good with me. That's the context for Jesus' comments. He's upset about religious leaders who are claiming to be holy in God's eyes because they've met the letter of the law without paying any attention to the spirit of the law. And so one one way to understand what Jesus is doing here, one way to say this, is that he is using absurdity to highlight absurdity. It's absurd what these guys are saying. Jesus is using absurdity to highlight absurdity. It is absurd to believe that you can impress God in any way, let alone by observing the letter of the law without the spirit of the law. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. But, and this is why he's saying this, if that's what you're trying to do, if you're trying to impress God with your actions then go ahead, gouge your eye out and cut off your hand to show God that you're serious about eliminating lust from your life. Now my guess is, I I certainly don't know this, but my guess is that the people to whom Jesus was speaking would have probably laughed when Jesus said that. I think they would have probably understood that he was being funny, that he's using absurdity to highlight absurdity. But what I want to do is I want to look at these two absurdities that Jesus refers to because I, they don't strike me as accidents. For instance, first he refers to the eye. If you think about it, the eye, of course, is how you see things. If you lust for someone, it always comes first through the eye gate. But Jesus is also using the eye as a double entendre of sorts to refer also to how you see, how you view the problem of lust in your mind. If you think that you can just gouge out an eye or cut off a hand and solve the problem of lust, he is saying you're looking at this problem in way too simplistic of a manner. Lust is more complex than that. And I would say it this way. Here's what Jesus wants us to understand about lust. And you might want to write this down or note this someplace. He's saying lust isn't just about the will. It's also about worship. It's not just about the will. You're not going to cut it out just by focusing on the will. Because lust is about worship. And here's what I mean. More and more people, not only Christians, but also secular people, are beginning to understand that lust in the form of pornography addiction has reached epidemic levels in our culture. Individuals who want to free themselves from this addiction, or perhaps they aren't even at the level of addiction, but they just want to stop using pornography, generally try to stop just by focusing on the will. They try any number of ways to stop that essentially amount to this. Saying to themselves, I'm not going to use pornography, I'm not going to use pornography, I'm not going to use pornography. They're focusing just on the will. But what they don't see, and I'm using the word see in the way that Jesus was referring to the eye here, meaning to perceive or to understand. What they don't see, what they don't understand is that you can't cure lust in whatever form it takes until you understand cognitively that lust is about Worship. Whether it's in the form of pornography or romance or whatever form it takes in a person's life. Remember we said last week that the word lust that Jesus uses here is the Greek word epithumia. Epithumia means disproportionate desire. It's to take a good thing and turn it into a god. It's to be obsessed with something. This is what lust is. It takes a good thing, sex, and it turns it into a god. Now why would people do that? think to yourselves why would people take sex and turn it into a God because listen to me here listen to me for many people sex and romance is the closest thing to heaven they will ever experience with Oreos being a close second sex and romance for many people is the closest thing to heaven that they will ever experience So you you have to see your own lust as not just wanting to get it on with someone, but you have to say to yourself, this is worship. I'm worshiping sex with this person like I would worship God. I'm dreaming about it. I'm fantasizing about it. Imagining it, thinking that if I could just have that person's body, not only would it be pleasurable, but it would also fulfill me, validate me, give me an identity. It would even complete me. And of course, that's that's a disproportionate view of sex. It can't do all of that. Sex is great in the context of marriage, but it can't do all of those things, even in the context of marriage. What Jesus is saying is that you won't stop lust merely by an act of the will. Lust is about worship. So here's the thing. If it's about worship, if it's not just an act of the will, if I can't deal with it in my life by just saying I'm not going to use pornography I'm not going to lust if I can't do that how do I deal with it how do I defeat it how do, how do you defeat your tendency to look at every woman that walks by you and think about sex with her how do you stop wanting to look at pornography how do you stop reading the romance novels that you've become addicted to believe it or not 250 years ago, a pastor by the name of Thomas Chalmers wrote a book that addresses, he doesn't address pornography specifically, but he's addressing any kind of addictive behavior like this. 250 years ago. And, and I'll, I'll tell you that the title of the book is very fancy. If you want to make people think you're smart, tell them about this book. The title is called, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. That's a pretty big deal, isn't it? The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's a tremendously insightful book written 250 years ago. We often say here that good psychology is good theology made per, uh, personal. And this is what Chalmers is doing in his book. He says, you could sit around and think about how terrible, let's say, pornography is. You can sit around and you can think about how terrible it is. You can tell yourself that it's bad. You can tell yourself about the horrible effect it's having on you and your marriage. You can determine not to use pornography anymore. But he says all of that will be tremendously ineffective. It won't work. Because it's not the nature of human beings to cut one thing out without replacing it with another. No, he says says, the best way to get rid of something like pornography is not to try to will yourself to stop using it, but it's to cultivate a love for something greater, something more beautiful. And of course, where Chalmers... What Chalmers concludes is that Christ is the only beauty, the only love, the only intimacy that can ultimately dislodge even the most powerful of affections we have for anything in this world, including pornography. If you want to cut pornography out of your life or lust in any form, it starts with changing the object of your worship. The more you worship Christ, the more you meditate on Christ, the more you read about Christ, the more you pray to Christ, the more you spend time with Christ, the more you understand what Christ has done for you, the less pornography or lust of any kind will have a hold on your life. See, he's just expositing what Jesus is saying here when he refers to the eye. You have to think about this differently. You have to view this issue differently. Differently than you have in the past. This isn't just about your will. It's about your worship. Who do you worship? What do you worship? You're worshiping sex. Substitute Christ for sex. Because you'll never find anything greater. Never find anyone better. Never find any intimacy. More meaningful. More beautiful. Than what Christ offers. That's why Jesus refers to the eye. But I want you to notice that he doesn't just say to take a cognitive approach to dealing with lust. He also speaks to a behavioral approach to dealing with lust. That's what what he's referring to when he speaks about the hand. And here's what he's saying, and you might want to write this down somewhere. You must be aware of the behaviors that contribute to your problem with lust in whatever form it takes. You must be aware of the behaviors that contribute to lust. So years ago, uh, when I was a young single man, I was in my mid-twenties, let's say, I had a roommate who asked me to pray for him, not to lust, because he was going to a strip club that night. And I was like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to do that. You know, prayer, behavior, just don't go to the the strip club. I'm not going to pray for you about that tonight. As we think about behaviors that contribute to lust in any form, I'm going to speak primarily right now about pornography use. Although many of the things that I'm going to say apply to women's use of romance novels as well. And by the way, let's acknowledge that pornography is becoming a greater and greater issue for women as well. In fact, a third of the users of pornography today are women. I want to speak to the issue of of pornography primarily because it has become an epidemic and it's an epidemic in the church as as well as outside the church. Dr. Patrick Carnes was the first and the leading proponent of the idea that some sexual behavior can be seen as addiction. And in his own counseling practice and research, Carnes discovered that there is a cycle of behavior Involved in pornography addiction. This is what we're talking about here. This is what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about your behavior. And Carnes says there's a cycle of behavior involved in pornography addiction. It starts with preoccupation. Porn users, Carnes says, are typically people who don't know how to deal with their negative emotions. Like stress, shame, pain, frustration, loneliness, sadness, those kinds of things. He writes, Pornography becomes a means of coping with stress and a shortcut to produce a positive emotion or mood. Now look, let's just acknowledge here that it's not just looking at pictures. Pornography also comes with masturbation. And so what people do is instead of dealing with the pain that they're feeling they find a quick way to a pleasurable feeling in order to escape having to deal with the pain. Once the the preoccupation stage has begun, they move into what he calls the ritual stage. He says, as the person tries to preoccupy themselves away from their negative feelings, they develop a way, a habit, a plan for acting out. And Carnes argues that porn addicts need to see that this is where they will win or lose their battle. It's in this stage, in the ritual stage. Because he says once they've reached the ritual stage, it is likely that they will reach the acting out stage. And so people who struggle with pornography need to come to terms with the cycle and they need to learn to stop their problem before they enter into the ritual stage. Karn su- suggests asking these questions. These are behavioral questions and they're very simple. Three very simple questions. You don't even have to write these down. The first is when. What time of day do you typically fall into porn? Morning? Noon? Night. When is it? What time of day? And then he says, ask the question, where? Where do you typically fall into porn? Is it in your bedroom? Is it at your desk? Is it the man cave? Is it in your parents' house? For those of you who may still live with parents. Where? When and where? And then third, how? How do you have... Access to porn. In other words, is it your laptop? Is it your desktop? Is it your phone? How do you have it? He would say that you have to ask those three questions so that you can not move from the ritual stage into the next stage. Okay? Now, I would suggest to you that it's here in the ritual stage that you have to substitute worship for Christ for worship of sex. Worship of Christ for worship of sex. That instead of acting out the ritual, worship Christ here. This is, that's how this works. Karn says that the third step is acting out. And the person moves from fantasizing and planning into actually falling into porn. And again, he says the key to stopping that stage is to help the person stop before they ever get there. And then finally, he says that the fourth stage is despair. After the person falls into porn, they realize that it didn't cure their negative emotions at all. Remember, they got into it because they didn't want to deal with negative emotions. They had a moment of pleasure. And then they realize that it didn't cure their negative emotions or mood. Instead, it only leads the person to feeling worse. And then guess what happens? Then guess what happens? Why do you start using porn? To deal with negative emotions. Despair is a negative emotion. And so the cycle begins all over again. That's how it works. Now besides, I don't know why we're doing that, but besides the fact that you're looking at that ritual, some of you to deal with this might need counseling. Some of you might need support groups to help you identify this ritual and to deal with this ritual. All of you will need this. You will all need to be able to talk about it. Because I'm going to tell you something. You won't deal with, with your problem with pornography alone. That won't work. And many of you already know that because you've tried that on many occasions. I'm going to say some, uh, a couple of things here that uh, are probably not going to be very popular, but my job isn't to be popular. I'm going to tell you, first of all, that I feel sorry for men especially men who are, I don't know, I'm going to use an arbitrary age, men who are, say, 45 and under. The reason I say that is that in my generation, all of us found pornography. every I mean, all of us did. Sometimes we found it in the woods. Sometimes it was an uncle or grandfather, someone who we found their pornography. Maybe they even offered it up to us. We saw their pornography that way. But it was still hard to get. It was hard to get, and every single one of us found it. Every single one of us got it. Today, for those that live in a technological age and are very comfortable with technology and who understand this and have become essentially addicted to, I think, technology, pornography is so easy to get. I mean, it's, it's just a click of a button. And I'm going to just be honest with you. I don't see how men say 45 and under, maybe older than that too, but I certainly don't see how younger men, I don't see how they don't end up using pornography and become addicted to pornography. And I'm talking about men in the church as well as men outside the church. And the reason that I feel sorry for them, some of you would just say, well, it's because you're a man. Sure. But the reason I feel sorry for them is that most of the men that I know that use pornography, that struggle with pornography in some way, most of them feel terribly ashamed. They feel awful about it. They don't want to use it. But they're addicted to it in some way, shape, or form. It's some level of addiction. And one of the problems is, is that they feel that no, there's no one that they can talk to about it. Like they don't think that anybody in the church would understand it. I'm going to tell you, men and those of you who are women who struggle with pornography too, that there are people here that will understand that. It's as much of an epidemic here as it is outside the church. Married, unmarried, it's an epidemic here. And there are many people who would understand that you struggle with this and who wouldn't judge you. Okay. But the other part of it is, is that not only do they feel that there's no one that they can talk to in their church, They feel such shame, and they are fearful of their spouses finding out. I want to talk to moms, and I want to talk to wives. What often happens to these men is that their wives, or these boys, their mothers, find pornography on their phone, their computer, whatever. And the moms rightfully feel angry, fearful, The wives rightfully feel hurt. And what they often do is that they throw guilt and they throw shame at the boy or at the man who's struggling with pornography. And maybe they threaten them with it. They threaten what they're going to do. I want to challenge you. I want to tell you this first. Let me just say this. I promise you that if you get angry and if you guilt them and if you shame them and and you threaten them, I'm going to promise you something. You'll never see the problem again. You never will. I don't mean it'll go away. I just mean you will never know about it. And here's what will happen. It will go dark. And when anything like that goes dark, it gets worse. It spreads and it gets worse. I promise you that's what will happen. What I want to challenge you, moms and wives, this is going to sound ridiculous to you, but I want to challenge you to try to absorb the hurt, communicate the hurt, and forgive. The very best gift that you could give your spouse, the very best gift that you could give your son, is the opportunity to communicate their problem with pornography to you. Now, hear me on this. If there's a spouse that is unrepentant about his use of pornography, if he's like, yeah, I don't care that you found it. I don't think there's a problem with it. Now, that's a big issue. That's one that may require significant counseling. It may even be an issue worthy of divorce. But what I think most of you are going to find is that your husband is terribly repentant about it. He feels great shame about it. And while it hurts you, and you are right to be hurt by it. My question to you is, what is your goal? You know, you can, you, can, you can leave your husband and go to another husband who's also dealing with pornography. Or you can point your husband to Christ, or your son to Christ. Who is the greater love. And who, as he learns more about Christ, as he learns to worship Christ, as he learns what Christ has done for him, that new affection will dislodge the old affection for pornography. What's your goal? I'm going to challenge you to absorb the hurt, forgive. Look. I know, it's hard to, I, know, I know for many women, it's very hard to understand men's relationship with sex. Because frankly, men often have an obsessive relationship with sex and a weird relationship with sex. Let's just say it. But ladies, I'm going to challenge you about this too. I'm going to tell you that I think your relationship with food is weird and obsessive. And that's why there are so many channels on television just about food, about cooking and eating, and all of that. I mean, how many of you ladies? You don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you ladies have sat around and said, "Oh, no, 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 I shouldn't, I can't, I won't"? Well, just one. How many of you obsess about about food? How many of you have gone to bed at night dreaming about food, fantasizing about food? Your relationship with food is weird. Your relationship with food is obsessive. Maybe you can understand men's relationship with sex a little bit by understanding the weirdness of your relationship with food. In our culture and in Christianity, obsession with food hasn't really normally been viewed as wrong. Pornography always has been. But are they really different? Studies have shown that the processes of addiction to food are the same as addiction to sex. And sure, there are different consequences for them. I understand that. But maybe you can understand men's trouble with sex by understanding your trouble with food. By the way, I realize I'm speaking in generalities. I understand not every man struggles with this. Not every woman does. Some men struggle with food. Some women... Struggle with pornography. I get that. I'm speaking in generalities. But Jesus is saying that if you only take a behavioral approach to dealing with lust, if you only focus on the will, you're going to fail. And he says also, if you take only a cognitive approach to lust, that you're going to fail. You have to recognize that lust is worship. And you have to deal with the behaviors that contribute to lust as well. Now what I hope you understand, and I hope that you're seeing, is that this isn't this isn't about Jesus hating sex. Far from that, Jesus is saying that sex is like fire. When it's in the fireplace, it's unbelievable. It provides warmth and beauty and intimacy and pleasure. But when it spreads out on the rug, everything and everyone gets burned. And when sex spreads beyond marriage and when it becomes an obsession and when you begin to dehumanize people, people get burned. Women, as a daily reality, have to deal with sexual harassment in their workplace, possibly. All sorts of things happen when sex spreads beyond the marriage. One final thing gouge out your eye, cut off your hand. And we said that these are absurdities, and they are, but I'm not saying that Jesus wasn't serious about those things. What are those things? What's he saying? He's saying physically sacrifice for sin. That's what he's talking about. He say, he's referring to a physical sacrifice for sin. And I want you to understand that Jesus did willingly allow himself to suffer physically. He did sacrifice himself physically with great bodily anguish for our sins. Because the only the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus was an acceptable sacrifice for our sins. Do you understand that? That Jesus did the absurd thing that he never wanted you to have to do. And he didn't need to do it. He did it because he loved you. Some of you might be sitting here today. You feel very proud of yourselves. You don't struggle with lust. Maybe you don't struggle with pornography. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. But what you need to understand is that you're a sinner too. Maybe not in those ways, but in other ways. And I want you to understand that no matter how good you think you are, Christ had to die for you. It is absurd for you to think that you can be a good enough person that somehow you will impress God. Christ had to die and suffer physically for you. And then there are some of you here today that are a Christ, they're, that, they're Christians, and you struggle with some of these things that we've talked about today. And I, maybe you feel... Likely you feel incredible shame and guilt. And you wonder how in the world God could love you. Well, I'm going to tell you something that you need to remind yourself today. That the power of the gospel is that it's not your lack of lust or your freedom from pornography that is the basis for God's pleasure with you. Yesterday, today, and always will be in the future, the basis for God's pleasure with you is the perfect life that Christ lived and the gracious death that he died for you on the cross. So in your lowest moments, when you feel the worst shame, when you feel so dirty, when you feel so guilty, those are the moments, at your lowest moments, That you rejoice in what Christ has done for you. You say to yourself, well that's going to feel like I'm just taking Christ's death on the cross for granted. No. It's saying that you're taking it seriously. And that you're saying, Jesus Christ died for me. Even in this terrible moment. God loves me as much as he did before this moment. You're taking it seriously. You're preaching the gospel to yourself. And that's the only thing that will deal effectively with your despair. And despair is what causes the cycle to repeat itself over and over and over again. Jesus is the only beauty, the only love, the only majesty, the only intimacy that can dislodge the lure of lust and pornography and make it fade away. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, for those who are here today that are, perhaps they're feeling great uh, guilt and shame, Lord, I pray that in this moment that you would speak the gospel into their hearts. Pray that they wouldn't walk out of here today with that, but that they would walk away by dropping their sins at the foot of the cross and by taking the promises that you have made to us seriously and that they would just, they would remind themselves that it is your life and your death not their perfection not their shame not their guilt it was your life and death that is the basis for their relationship with God frankly that's a truth that is too great to believe and I Lord I feel very strongly that the only way that a person can believe that is if you do something supernatural in their lives Lord, I would pray that today for those that have never heard that truth. That it's not about their behavior and their action, but it's about a relate it's about Christ's life and death. That's the basis for a relationship with God. Then I pray that Lord that today that today would be the first day that in the privacy of their seat that they would say, "Lord, I believe that. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. Be my savior today." We thank you for these truths. And as I said, they're just too powerful. They're too great for us to believe on our own. And so do something in us supernaturally. It is in Christ's name we pray.